Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm in the studio with Fordham English professor and Shakespearean scholar Mary Bly. Romance readers may be more familiar with her pen name, Eloisa James. She's written a number of critically acclaimed romance novels and reached the New York Times bestseller list on multiple occasions. Today we'll address some of the stereotypes surrounding romance novels and examine the changing tides of romance writers and readers. Since we're talking romance writing, can I refer to you as Eloisa? Sure. Okay. Eloisa. So let's address some of the top critiques about romance novels. Get them out of the way here. So here's a list of the most common complaints that I found. One, the way romance novels are written is too formulaic. Romance novels are nothing more than female pornography. And romance novels are sexist and bombarding women with the message that finding and keeping a man is their most important goal in life. So let's start with the first one, Eloisa. The idea that romance novels are just written formulaically. How would you address that? Frankly, almost everything is written formulaically. But genre fiction particularly is. There's sort of a an idea at the heart of every genre fiction novel that's like, okay, it's going to end this way, right? It's going to end with a murderer being caught in a mystery. If it doesn't, everyone will freak out. And with a romance, it's going to end with the man and woman, the woman and woman, they're all different combinations ending in a healthy, happy relationship that may continue. They say Mr. Right or Mr. Right Now or whatever. So there, there is that formula. There's a box. There's a very narrow box in which you're working. The problem is people say that is they don't realize how hard it is to be creative within a box. You know, as a Shakespearean, I see Shakespeare doing that because he never wrote a play, almost never, where there wasn't a complete source. So with Romeo and Juliet, he's working with the story of Romeo and Juliet. With Hamlet, he's working with the story of Hamlet. How can he be creative within the parameters? And he has there a much more narrow box because, you know, Romeo and Juliet meet. We know their age. We know they commit suicide. The only structure I really have is the end. The promise of the end has got to be there. Within that, I can write anything I want. Now, often people are referring to Harlequin novels, and those are more formulaic. They have a bunch of different series, and they will publish the actual guidelines. So they say, for example, these women are divorced. This is their second chance at love. Well, there's a smaller, more narrow box there. I can't go introducing a 19-year-old virgin because she's got to be divorced. So let's take the second one. Romance novels are nothing more than female pornography. I think there's a lot of fear in our culture about women and desire. In some sense, these novels do affirm female desire, and so many young feminists are looking at them through those lens, and there's a lot of you know, feminist approval of the novels. But that doesn't mean that there aren't men, in particular, I would say, just from my male on the other side, who say, these novels are arousing. It's not clear why they're so afraid of women being aroused, But I also get a significant, if small, amount of mail that says you're teaching them unrealistic expectations. I just taught a class down at the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. And this young man in the class, he was an MFA student, he said, your hero is able to make love too many times in a night. And the whole class looked at him, you know. And he said, well, I'm gay, so I know these things. And we all looked at him. And I said, well, because I was rewriting Romeo and Juliet, I said, you know, All I can say is my hero was very young, (laughs) you know, he'd been a virgin a few weeks before. It was a big deal for him. And what are are you going to say? I have, I'm not going to claim any personal, I don't have, you know, I don't have the right accoutrements to claim this is possible. But I would say that's where I find the question interesting because people invest so much emotion in it. You Mm -hmm. know, the men who write to me say, my wife feels that I should be able to do this and that, and that's your fault. And... 
I don't know. You know, then I get a lot of other letters that say, I read your books and I realize that I have to leave this abusive relationship. Mm. So it's not something where you can really engage in coherent dialogue often with the person who feels it because whatever reason they're bringing their dislike of romance is coming, it has something to do with their lives mm -hmm. and their inner self. And their point of view. And yeah, and often like their sex life or something like that. And so... Well, whatever. <laughs> I once heard the phrase, we don't see people how they are. We see them how we are. And I mm -hmm. guess that might apply for books also. Yeah, You so. know, if you happen to be in that particular experience and it becomes easy to blame a romance writer to say this is totally unrealistic because I haven't done it or haven't seen it. Exactly. <laughs> or can't you know, do it. <laughs> I love that. I'm gay, so I know. I was like, well... Okay, then. <laughs> Help me understand why some intellectual literary readers seem to have contempt for romance novels in general, just yeah. whether they've even read them or not. Well, a lot of people have them without ever reading them, which is unfortunate because I think they should read them. But they're very different kinds of writing. You know, so if you are a literary writer, you're looking for a complexity of language. You're looking for a plot that you find disturbing, that teaches you something about your soul, that teaches you more about the world, that might teach you about a group of people that you don't know anything about. It also teaches you something about history. If we just use Orphan Train, for example, the novel that's so big right now, or The Help. These are novels that look at part of American history that you don't know about and turn them into something so you're experiencing it along with them. That's a wonderful thing. And some people, that's the kind of literature they want to read. Other people may be in a really difficult stage or they may just not want to be learning about Orphan Train right at this moment. That does not mean they are not interested in learning. That's one thing I really dislike is when readers are denigrated as unintelligent. Readers of genre fiction often in a moment when they want to be carried away. They want to fall into a plot and they just want to be in that old word, the page turner, is so true. They just want to flip that electronic device, ding, 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 ding. They want to escape. They come out refreshed. They come out ready to return to, to their teenagers. They have six teenagers. They are like, you know. Working hard or. <laughs> working hard, having trouble economically. There's a lot of reasons why we may not want to face challenging literature. And they have to do with hospitals. They have to do with hospices. They have to do with bad marriages, good marriages, exhaustion. I have lots of young mothers reading my books. You're too tired to go read 600 pages of the signature of all things, you know, the wonderful Elizabeth Gilbert novel. But, you know, maybe you can pick up a romance and you will go back to the signature of all things. You'll join a book club when your children are in kindergarten. You'll read those things. You'll keep learning. But you have an open mind. You read everything. And it seems that the fact that you said learn something uh, got me because I read romance novels. A friend of mine's always teased me because of it. And I just finally said, well, why don't you read them? And she said, I like literature I can learn from. And I said, that's fine. I said, but you're almost putting it on a lower level than whatever you're choosing to read. Mm -hmm. And that's my question. It seems, why does it seem that romance novels get denigrated? They are not just, I choose not to read them, but people almost are proud to say, oh, I don't read that because it's right. so. Why does it seem to come off like that? It's a really interesting question. I mean, we have a tremendous amount of class pressure in our society. We like to say we're classless. We're not. And the intellectual impulse to say, you're stupid because you read something I don't like, 
is one that I find really regrettable, but it is definitely out there. And for a long time, another example of this is cartoons. My mother wouldn't let us read too many Archie and Jughead cartoons, which I adored. Well, now if you look at what's happened, they are now called graphic novels. And Neil Gaiman took Shakespeare and made them into these wonderful novels. To Caroline, it was made into a movie, and their reputation has completely changed. But when I was young, if you were reading a graphic novel, it meant that you were illiterate. There was the choice of reading the cartoon, or you were supposed to be reading Wuthering Heights. So we constantly shape those binaries, and I think they're very, very unhelpful. It means that your friend is implicitly saying to you, well, you don't like to learn. That is not true. And I find that most romance readers read a lot of romance. They might well read other things. They may be learning in other areas that you are not knowing about, you intellectual reader. But the unfortunate part, I think, is that often because romance is connected to women, it gets bound in with a sort of denigration of women's intelligence, which has been a problem in America right from the beginning, and I think continues to be a problem. That is really unfortunate. Women are leading most of the households in America. We earn more than the men in many households. If you put in the single mothers, really, in the larger percent, we have a tremendous amount of pressure on us. And the idea that any woman in particular would denigrate another woman for choosing a different kind of literature than she, let's just say it's actual pornography. What right do you have to say she shouldn't read pornography? Maybe her personal life isn't what it should be, you know? I don't think we should denigrate people for what they read, even if it's something that I personally, I personally don't read pornography. It doesn't, it's not something that, that I want to spend my time on, but that doesn't mean I'm going to denigrate anybody who does. Right. So what constitutes a romance novel versus a novel that has romance in it? Well, there's, there's a continuum, right, going from genre fiction up to literary fiction. So a romance novel is something where the romance is going to be at the very center of the story. We're essentially talking about, if you look at it, movies, chick flit, anything where a relationship is the center of the story, a love relationship, not a father-son type thing, is going to be a romance. But then that moves into a sort of more nebulous category called women's fiction, in which may often have to do with a suburban marriage, for example, or some other marriage, and there might be a little romance in there. That's called a novel with romantic elements, basically. But it's women's fiction. It's still directed at a female audience. Then you go up to literary fiction, and you're often dealing with literary fiction that has a romance. So, for example, I just read a literary novel by Gabrielle Zebin called The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey, which is about a 31-year-old widow who has a bookstore, and it's a lot about books. But essentially, that's a romance. But it's written like literature. It's written entirely from his point of view, almost entirely. But that's literature. There's another book of literature out there called The Rosie Project, which is a wonderful bestseller from last year. It's clearly literature, but it is a romance. It's a project to find a wife, and Rosie is the wife in question. So we have romances that are in literature, and we have romances as a genre. And often people who read The Rosie Project tell themselves, I only read literature. You know, and that if they need to bolster their self-esteem by saying, I don't read romance, Romance is available for them in literature. The difference is that in The Rosie Project in particular, the language is hysterically funny. And generally speaking, in romance, it has a different kind of language. It has a different kind of rhythm. It moves very, very fast. The Rosie Project, you need to give attention to the language in order to understand. So you have to read it as literature. Eloisa, can you give me an example of how romance novels have changed from maybe the early 70s when they seemed a little bit more bodice ripper like Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
and defined bodice ripper. Right. Romance novels change every decade. They change with people who are reading them and the people who are writing them. So in the 70s, you had The Flame and the Flower, right? And those were very rape-based. It was rape in the sense that the woman would have her shirt, her bodice ripped off, which is the, where bodice ripper comes from. She would then experience a lot of pleasure, but she never had to say yes. She was pinned to the bed. And she was dominated. Well, yeah, exactly. So sociologists are looking at, say, the flame and the flower and looking at what was happening in the 70s. Women are moving into the workplace. Of course, the pill has come into operation in the 60s. So there's a lot of pressure on women to be perfect in all different spheres and to be sexually active. A lot of these women are coming right out of the 60s when many, many people were not. Yes, there were the flower childs, but lots of other people are sort of grappling with a new ethos in which you're supposed to be accepting sexual partners outside marriage romance kind of put those fears in perspective. Some God's going to come along, pin you to the bed, and you get to have lots of fun, which is what you're supposed to do, but you don't have to feel bad or good. It happened without your consent. Okay. And that was really important sociologically, culturally for the 70s. If you follow each generation along, you're going to see romance switch very quickly with what's coming up from below. So the chic books, which are written in the shorter Harlequins before 9-11, and the chic books that are written after 9-11 are a real study by sociologists right now. because And what are those? Well, chic books are, these appear in small category books, so not single title. And they appear in um, mostly in a series called Holocon Presents. And so they have the Greek billionaire's um, secret mistress, the sheik's secret baby, the cowboy's secret baby. They, they have sort of a very recognizable plot from the title. And sheiks are extremely popular in romance. And they were before. They were when I was growing up. I have distinct memories of reading sheik romances. And after 9-11, they have maintained their popularity. But of course... The way in which they're dealt has changed. What were they like pre and what well, are they like post? There's no talk of religion now. None, right? These guys are all educated in England, Oxford or Cambridge. They're in unidentified small desert countries. They are incredibly, you know, PC, technical, etc. So it's really interesting to see how you can have sort of a fantasy genre. I'm going to be swept away by a chic. And it was a bodice stripper. It's not anymore. Now he's like Mr. PC, Mr. Liberal. At the same time, he's like, I'm a sheik. I'm an alpha. I'm a sheik. I rule a whole country. So you get kind of a, a modulating fantasy. You said the term alpha, and it seems like that is the type of man that flows through all these books. Why? As opposed to a beta you know, betas have been popular at various points. They really have. Okay. And I've written a couple of them. They did very well. But they would not right now. Why? It's a good question. It's not one I know really how to answer because okay. I think what, what I'm seeing in academic study of romance, which is very, very vital and happening right now, is that you kind of need 10 years to look back and say, oh, what was going on? Like, I'm really fascinated to see what people say about Fifty Shades of Grey in 10 years, in five years. Christian Grey, who's the hero of that book, which I have not read, but I know quite about it, is obviously the ultimate sort of alpha right. dominant hero, mm -hmm. right? And rich, successful, rich, powerful, successful, powerful, everything. And she's like a very young virgin who just sort of doesn't have to worry. And I, I think it's part that's something I referred to before. We've got a lot of pressure on us now as women. 93% of the readers of romance are female and it, it's an escape genre. And I think the escape there can often be a committed, successful, salary earning, please, male who is respectful you know he doesn't even have to be that respectful if he could just be nice you know 
a fantasy genre is a fantasy genre and what it shows unfortunately is often a deficit in culture mm -hmm. so i think when the beta hero was very much in demand it was showing a real longing on the part of women for men who were more sensitive who could talk their language who could speak to them the alan alders yeah, you know the for alan Mash. alder was mm -hmm. a huge star he would not be a star now he right. just wouldn't so we're seeing something else coming up now and how that will be interpreted by sociologists in 10 years will be really interesting to see. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, and today I'm talking with romance writer Eloisa James about some of the stereotypes surrounding romance novels and the changing tide of romance writers and readers. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead. Film fanatics save up box offices all over the tri-state area with the WFUV member card. And as a WFUV member, you'll get discounted admission at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the Jacob Burns Film Center. To find out more about the benefits of being a WFUV member, visit WFUV.org. Eloisa, you were born Mary Bly. Where does the name Eloisa James come from? I was born Mary Bly, but I was at that point an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and I couldn't publish the book under my own name. So, Why? Because I probably wouldn't have got tenure. Really? Uh, and not, not because of denigration of the genre so much, although that would have been part of it, but because we do not want our young tenured Shakespeare professors to have an entire different publishing life. We want them to be publishing in Shakespeare. And it's a, it's a huge commitment to tenure a professor. You're saying this person will continue to run the university for many years to come. So is it more about they want that to be your focus or is it more sure. about yeah. we don't want our students to know that you also well, that was part of novels. it, too. Really? I mean, so we have denigration of the genre, but also coming together, I think, with the fact that I, too, would feel as I wasn't hired in creative writing. I was hired to be a Shakespeare scholar. Am I going to keep the university's name up in Shakespeare studies? That's tremendously important. My grad students need me to be going to the Shakespeare Association and presenting so they can get jobs. I have to be continually publishing. For me, luckily, I'm kind of deeply competitive in both fields, and so I've managed to make it work. But... I would have hesitation about a young faculty member who was going to take on a whole second career. At this point, to be a New York Times bestselling author and to be a lead author for HarperCollins, which I am, is a full-time career. I don't have any friends at my level who have another job. So I sometimes get very tired. I think, oh, I can't wait to retire. <laughs> but on the other hand, I love teaching, so it's possible I would retire from writing before I left Fordham. Really? Yeah, really? I really love my class. I love I love learning. Your friend who says she wants to learn, mm -hmm. right? I actually learn a lot from romance novels. I think a lot of people do. I learn a lot from teaching my Shakespeare class. I learn a lot from reading literature. I learn a lot from talking to audiences of romance readers and writers, you know. So I don't, right now I wouldn't want to give up any of that. Would you have to hide the fact that you had these dual careers or did it just sort of, didn't mention it? You just sort of... I hit it. You hit it. I yeah. hit it. I, At one point, People Magazine wanted to run a picture of Eloisa James, and I came into the chair of the English department at Fordham, because I had by then moved to Fordham, and I said, look, I've got this other career, and People Magazine wants to run my picture, and he said, please don't do that. You will not get tenure. Really? He was also concerned about the fact that Fordham is a Jesuit school, and there might be denigration of the genre because of 
there being sexual content. As it's turned out, the administration has been incredibly supportive. And I well, just, now that you're tenured. <laughs> yeah. Well, then they found out. I didn't tell anyone until I was tenured, but, and I'd hit the New York Times list. It happened in the same year. Awesome. But I just went down to uh, Florida with Father McShane and addressed a bunch of alumni, which was really interesting. I had a great time. I think they were interested. We talked about romance. We talked about Shakespeare, Romeo, and Juliet. It was kind of Part of the Fordham likes to reach out to its alumni in a learning kind of way, like come along to dinner, but let's talk about something. So one of the things I do for Fordham um, occasionally is take a bunch of alumni to a play. So we're going to see Macbeth, and that's going to be really fun. I think we'll so. We'll go to dinner beforehand, talk about Macbeth, go out to see the play. Do you think the timetable of before you became Eloisa to having your tenure, is it also a change in the way we're looking at romance novels, you think, that makes it more acceptable now? It's far more acceptable now. It was still pretty rocky when I came out of the closet, as it were. Mm -hmm. But that was part of my decision. I decided that now I had tenure. If I kept it a secret, I was denigrating my own readers. I was saying, I'm ashamed of you. And I'm not ashamed of them. I'm not ashamed of these books. Frankly, it was kind of a feminist move. I was like, look... This is here. You can't pretend this is not here. And I'm doing this. And I became something of a spokesperson for the genre because I do a lot of public speaking. So it's easy for me. It's a lot easier for a lot of writers who sort of stay at home and are more used to being in a private space. For example, I was the first romance writer to give a talk at the National Book Festival on the Mall in Washington, D.C., because they wanted to include romance. They know it's an extremely popular genre. They know it's representative of American literature and worldwide literature, which is what the National Book Festival does. But obviously they had to find someone who's going to be comfortable talking to a whole freaking tent full of people. And I had a Nobel Prize winner following me. So it was nerve-wracking. <laughs> definitely was. So how was that experience like, though? You're, you're here, you're, you're speaking about something that was sort of quiet not too long ago, and now right. you're being, you know, the spotlight is on you now because of you being a romance writer. The National Book Festival was really interesting because it's on huge tents on the mall in Washington, D.C., and I'm nervous. I thought, you know, people might stand up and, like, yell at me. And also, I was being followed by Mario Vargas Llosa, who's a Nobel Prize winner, who has won the Why Nobel Prize. Why was he following you? Well, he was in the tent after me. So I thought, these people are going to be there because they want to see the Nobel Prize winner, and they have to sit through my talk. And I thought they're just going to be incredibly disdainful. The wonderful thing was that I thought they're all just going to be there and they won't even clap. And, and in like, fact, you know, the opening act and they just want to get to the main stage. Yeah, that's and, right, yeah. I was thinking of it. But I'd written this talk and I had to give it, which is hard. You know, you couldn't read it. And then, what was the talk? Do you know? Well, it was a talk about romance mm -hmm. because there what I am, aspect? the first person. Well, I talked, you know, about what romance is in our culture, about how I write about some of my books. But it wasn't, as I saw it, my role there was not to say, here's what I write. Because as the first person, I had to set the tone for how people viewed romance. And I also thought I'm going to have these Nobel Prize winner readers in the audience. I have to make some of the points I've made during this radio show that there's something to be in the spokesperson in an informal sense for your own genre. You have to live up to it, stand up to the plate. So I gave this, and this is one of my favorite things of all time. When I left the tent, most of the tent left. Oh, like, yes. So they were here to see, come me. to see me. <laughs> so I was happy. And so this Nobel Peace Prize winner is following you around. No, he's a Nobel Literature Prize. Oh, Nobel Prize for Literature. Wow. So he was the next act in right. my tent. Wow. 
Well, so they really were there to see you. Yes, and he had won the Nobel Prize for his trenchant images of defeat. Oh, wow. And I was thinking, whoa, that is night and day from my books. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, I got no trenchant images of defeat. And then he's sitting there like, she's t- she, t- she took my whole audience. <laughs> well, no, he didn't come in. I didn't see him. I'm sure he arrived with an entourage, and I'm sure he had a huge audience. But And, and specifically the name, Eloisa James. Where did that come from? I was in Italy with my husband, and I had to come up with pseudonym, and I was pregnant. And I saw this name on a lamppost. It said, Chiama Eloisa. Call Eloisa. Lose 20 pounds in 20 days, but in Italian, right? And I said, oh, I love that name. I'm going to name. We, we knew we were having a daughter. Let's name her Eloisa. And my husband said, no, that is a totally nouveau riche name. You cannot name her that. That is, you know. Which he said in Italian because he's yes, an Italian he knight, Italian. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he said in Italian, absolutely not. And we ended up naming my daughter Anna, which is, you know, a name that goes back four generations in his family. And I like it, too. So right. that's fine. But I named myself Eloisa. And that turned out to be a very smart decision, actually, for those of you maybe listening who are authors or would-be authors, because I am pretty much the only Eloisa. So people just refer to me by my first name, something I didn't know about, but turned out to be a very great marketing ploy. <laughs> and where'd the James come from? He was reading Henry James at the time. Uh, it was across the room, and I thought, oh, Eloisa James, that sounds good. Eloisa, does a feminist romance novel have to sort of have a patriarchy-destroying narrative? No, I don't think so at all. Feminism is a very mutable system of thought, let's say, right? So the patriarchy is a word that that identifies a system of government and culture which is largely run by men. And if you look at our Senate and our CEOs, I mean, we're in a patriarchy. There's no getting around that. However, feminism now I think is much more about the individual life, right? Of course we should continue to fight you know, for for representation of women in in all areas. I'm a very big believer in the ideas that are expressed in Lean In, for example, the book by Sheryl Sandberg, which one of the things that Sheryl points out is that 30 years after women became 50% of the college graduates in the United States, men still hold the vast majority of leadership positions. So as a feminist, I look at that and think, okay, you know, we have a ways to go. But as a romance writer, I look at a much more personal level. I think every woman has the right to decide whether she wants to be a leader or whether she wants to lead her household or whether she wants to just have her own household, whether she wants to have children. That's what feminism has done for us, It's given us that choice. You can go lean in and fight for a position in the Senate. I'm behind you. I will donate to your campaign. Or you can say, I'm going to be a home mother. I'm going to take care of this household. That's going to be my life's work for the next 10 years, and then I'm going to go for Senate. That's what feminists have done. They've won the ability for us to make those choices all over the place to do all kinds of things. And I think literature comes with us, right? During a certain amount of years, you might want to be reading self-help, like Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg's book. I think it's very useful for recent graduates, for example. If anyone's thinking of a present for a graduate, get them Lean In, for a female anyway. But, you know, when you're having young children, you might want to be reading romance because you're just too tired to read anything else. Later on, you might join a book club. You might want to be reading literature. You might want to be reading memoir. You might want to decide you want to know all about World War II all those things are available. It's all about choice. Yeah, it's all, all about, about choice. choice. So, Eloisa, what's your next project? Your next romance writing project? So, Three Weeks of Lady X is the story of a woman. 
it sounds very brothel-like, but in fact, she's got three weeks to renovate a house. And this came from my daughter and I watching tons of reality shows on the Home Network, you know, which are about people scrambling to, to fix a whole house. So she basically is a very interesting position in the Regency period because she's, she's a daughter of someone who is a nobleman, but she had to make money. So she essentially has a career. There were women who were renovating houses at the time, sort of directing the renovation, as it were. And she's one of those. So this man comes to her who is illegitimate. He's a son of a duke, but he's illegitimate. He's bought a country estate, and he wants to get married, and he's picked out this nice young woman he wants to marry, but he has to fix up the estate before the young woman and her mother come to visit. And so he hires Lady Zenobia India. He hires Lady X to fix up that estate in three weeks. And that was such a fun book to write. And I think readers are also really responding to the fact that there's a certain amount of research that went into it. And here's, as a Shakespeare professor, I like having the actual facts in there. So I had to find out what a pound of chocolate cost, how much did it cost to get silk stockings for your footmen, and what kind of stockings do they wear? What do you put on the walls? Do you have wallpaper? Do you paint the walls? I had, I had so much fun getting into the details. And my hero and heroine send these letters back to each other because he starts complaining about the cost of things. He's like, are you crazy? That Venetian mirror costs a fortune. And she send it back. And she's like, I am not sending it back. Absolutely not. And she says, you know, she writes back a letter. She's like, the Venetian mirror was installed today. It looks beautiful. <laughs> and they're fighting back and forth through these letters. And the readers have loved at once the letters. I think it speaks to what we're doing now, the way we are. But also, just the historical details, people like to learn stuff in a fun way. You end up learning quite a lot about a Regency house, but in a fun way. I'd like to thank Eloisa Jean for coming in and sharing her ideas this morning. And you can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 o'clock. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. I also want to thank my senior producer, Alan Canlick. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>